Welcome back, everyone, to uh, another sporting blog podcast. Um, it's been a very busy week for me with my uh, other stuff going on, but um, we've made time for a really uh, exciting guests this week. Um, and it's someone I've been looking forward to having on for a while now, and uh, the timing has worked out perfectly. I'm joined by Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok, and he has a new book out called Shoemaker, which is the untold story of the British family firm that became a global brand. Uh, afternoon, Joe. Well, good afternoon, Ollie. Nice to speak to you. No, well, I think the pleasure's all ours. And um, as we were just saying off air, um, I got the book as soon as it came out um, via a very large online marketing company that's named after a rainforest. And yes. um, they, uh, they sent me my Kindle version and I've been motoring my way through it. I'm pretty close to the end, but I've not quite got there yet. But um, I have got through um, the vast majority. And I think um, one thing that I got out of it, um, and I know when I sent you some, some notes over email, I didn't really mention this uh, because it's really only come to me in the last day or two. But one thing I've got out of the book um, that I'd sort of like to to get your take on really is is just the concept of inspiration because i have picked up and you you, you can tell me otherwise that um you you were inspired by a lot of different things and some of that was perhaps a frustration um led inspiration uh, grand dreams grand designs um a want for a better life a want for a bigger brand all of those things where do you think your very early inspiration came from i mean pre-reebok but your inspiration to build something where do you think that came from well i i don't know really that i i had i think i was a normal kid i think i'm still a normal person and normal kids just play out want to do things play badminton uh we were jeff and myself of course jeff was with me starting the company uh we we were in the scouts we both did national service so we did a lot of things and it was really only coming out of national service that you realize just a minute, we, we, we're now part of this business, which was then J.W. Foster and Sons, that had a superb history, way, way back to 1895. Um, and when we came back from uh, doing our national service, we, we'd sort of woken up to life, as it were. You know, we had to fend for ourselves, uh, understand you're not at home anymore, mother's not making your meals, you, you're not protected, you've got to look after yourself. So coming back, we looked at the company and we saw that it was failing. A company which in the 1920s was absolutely superb. It done fantastic things. Uh, my grandfather, that is, had supplied Olympic teams in 1920 um, at Antwerp and all the teams through, 19, through the 1920s. Um, even the athletes who were in the chariots of fire, that is uh, Eric Liddell, um, Harold Abrahams and uh, Lord, uh, oh, forget his name quite now, but he was a he good was, runner. It wasn't very good runner. They all got, uh, um, they all got gold medals in the Olympic Games. Twenty nine. Uh, it was Eric Liddell and Abrams. They got their medals in nineteen twenty four, um, <laughs> but they were then immortalised in this film, Chariots of Fire. So he was supplying athletes who were winning gold medals all the time. Yeah. To, to come back to when we came out of the forces doing our national service, uh, we found the company failing because my 
my father and uncle, they just did not go down together. They, they, they feuded more than they worked together. And as a result, the company suffered. The company wasn't going forward. So our inspiration was the fact that uh, we needed the company to su succeed. And I talked to my father, I talked to uncle, um, and my father, all he could say, well, look, when we are gone, this company is yours. And, uh, well, all I could say back to my father was, look, look, Dad, we don't want you dead, but this company will be dead long before you are. The way yeah, I really, um, I really picked up on that from the book. Now, actually, just, just before we go on, you did your national service, not, well, part of your training, um, only a few miles from here. Um, we're recording from Marlborough in Wiltshire, and you were at uh, RAF Yatesbury, I believe. Uh, that's where I trained for radar operator, yes. Yeah, just up the road, just yeah. a few miles from here, in fact. That's quite, quite interesting. We used to get down to the local place. What's, what's, what's your nearest big city now? Swindon's still, I guess, Swindon. the, Swindon's still yeah. probably the biggest, but, you know, Marlborough's pretty developed with the school and everything. But, yeah, I mean, Yatesbury itself is kind of in the middle of nowhere, isn't it? There's not much sort of immediately <laughs> it is, there. It is really, yes, yes. But we used to get down to Swindon on a Saturday night to... Uh, Joe Loss was playing in Swindon in those days, so wow. very interesting. Yeah. That's if anybody remembers Joe Loss, of course. Well, I'm sure someone will, but I think um, I did pick up on, um, well, I mean, it's, it was not really pick up, it doesn't take a genius to work out from the book that you, you butted heads with your father over the direction of the company. Was, I, obviously I got the vibe that in general, he was running the company to exist rather than to grow and to expand. Did you, did you, when you were early, in early on in your in your career, did you always have bigger aspirations for J.W. Foster and Sons, or or did you kind of think you may have to split off at some point? Well, what, what we saw, as I say, was a company died. Jeff had been over in Germany. He'd seen the progress of Adidas and Puma. He'd, he'd seen the difference. Uh, and we we come back to Foster's and Foster's still making the same shoes they were making in the 30s and 40s. They hadn't moved on. They, and there's no vision. Now, we just said, you know, you know, the company has to move on. But like you say, we butted heads and we didn't get on uh, to the point where the, the only answer to our desire to really make a company that had to grow. Because, you know, companies don't stagnate. They either they plateau for a while, then they go down. So you've got to keep moving forward. You've got to be with the trend. And, and they weren't. Our, our only answer to this was to leave the company and set up our own company. Yeah, and when you did when you did leave originally um, on day one, you mentioned vision there, which is, I think, a really important word. And for any aspiring entrepreneurs out there, or or those already in business, you know, quite often you're asked by agencies and others to set out your vision, your mission statement, your uh, brand purpose, and things like that. Did you have a vision in the early days? I mean. People will read in the book, you know, how you came to name the company Reebok in the end. But did you have a vision for, for this new company or were you essentially trying to just do better than J.W. Foster and Sons was doing at that time? Well, yeah, I think essentially <clears throat> what, we, what we look for, <clears throat> what we really look for was uh, we, we needed a, a business to work in. We, we needed a future. We could see no future. And when you can see no future, you've got to do something about it. So initially it was, well, how, how do we have a company going forward? 
and we couldn't get it through J.W. Foster, so we, we, we set up on our own. And we set up really making cycle shoes, which was not what J.W. Foster had been doing, but we didn't want to compete with them. And that was our main uh, effort, was to, to get a company that we could take forward. <clears throat> and, it, and then when you get the company, then you start to think, where can we take it? And, okay, the dream is always there that we could be bigger than Adidas. We could be a big company, but uh, you have to take those steps, the small steps. Um, and, and, and to get big, for me, to get anywhere to get big, I needed a bigger market than yep. the UK. We had, unfortunately, I mean, Foster's incredibly had supplied almost every football team that you can mention. <clears throat> I think it was only Chelsea and Tottenham that were not on their list at the time. Although I do remember when I worked at Foster's sending packages down to Tottenham Hotspur. But well, that a fact. wonderful team to send them to, Joe, as well. It's very good of you to mention <laughs> the finest team in North London. Oh, there you go. I can, <laughs> I can tell you're a supporter. <laughs> so, uh, yes, and, and um, you know, they had that business there. And we'd, we'd, we started to roll away. But when we set off in our business, unfortunately, football by that time really was uh, um, the domain of Adidas. They had really taken that that uh, uh, category, and although we would have loved to be supplying football teams, the cost in those days because then influencing uh, influencing cost money, uh, certainly in uh, in football, not too bad in athletics, but athletics is a small business. But yeah. it was in then it was very small by comparison to to football. And so if I wanted a bigger market, I had to go to America. And so that, that was my uh, aim from very early times. And it was 1968 before I got the first opportunity to go to America. And I remember you uh, in, in the book, your father actually had, no, it was your uncle, I believe, that actually had a, an early contract in the States um, supplying, was it Harvard? Um, with, with Yale. Right, that's it. So with, yeah, they were supplying Yale with 200 pairs yeah. of hand-sewn um, hand athletic shoes a month. And they didn't realise at the time kind of what potential they had on their hands. No, they didn't. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, you know, they never went to America. My yeah. father or uncle never went to America. It was the American, it was Frank Ryan, uh, who was uh, who with Bob G and Jack, they were head coaches at Yale. And Frank Ryan had Irish sort of background and he used to come over to Ireland um, almost every, in fact, he used to spend summer in Ireland with his wife. So he came across to the UK and he, he met up with, uh, uh, well, with, with my uncle, with my uncle at the time, because uncle was doing the, uh, the hand sewn product. And yes, uh, we, we do have the papers, which is a contract wow. between Foster's and, uh, and, and, uh, well, the two of them, who were the Yale coaches, Bob Jack and uh, Frank Ryan. So they had that. Yeah, and you, you, um, there's there's a, a good good chunk of the book that that focuses on your um, your sort of relentless pursuit of the American market. If you don't mind me saying it, it looked like that was your true focus. And as as the company was, uh, you know, starting to do quite well here and, and becoming a domestic brand, your focus was on the states and you made a lot of trips to the annual convention and so on. Now, 
yes. on this topic of inspiration, you know, <laughs> how inspiring was it going to the States? I mean, I've done a lot of work in the States myself and I, I echo your sentiments in the book of the can-do attitude and the positivity just it drips from every pore. Um, how inspirational was it for you once you'd been there? Did the bug just get you? Well, I mean, absolutely. I remember that first trip and I went with a good friend, Bob Brigham, who he, he's camping climbing, which is a different side. You know, we're in athletics or sports shops. Camping climbing is outdoor shops. But we were making for him um, a climbing boot, a fairly lightweight climbing boot. So Bob uh, decided he would come with me. The reason that we went on 968 was uh, the Board of Trade. They decided that they wanted to support exports from the sports trade. And uh, <clears throat> they, they were offering um, to pay for the stand in the American NSGA show, which is the National Sporting Goods of America. Um, they offered a free stand, they offered the flights, return flights, and half the hotel bill. So it wasn't really much of a brainer to say, yes, we're going to go. But uh, Bob went with me, we went on the stand, he was showing the boot, I was showing our range of athletics footwear. Lots of people came up and said, oh yes, where do we get these from? Uh, I said, England. And they, they look, they say, New England? <laughs> no, 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 England. Oh, oh dear. And they, they couldn't take that in. That didn't seem to work. And they were, they were all saying, well, when you get a distribution over here that we can buy off, then you know, we'll take your product. Yeah. That, that was fine. But Bob, he did sell some of his climbing shoes. It seemed the outdoor business was more used to the idea of importing product, I suppose, skis and things like that from Europe. So we took, Bob took some orders for the boots. And since we were making his boots, it meant we actually got some orders. Um, but it was 11 years before, really, before we managed to find a key. Well, we got the key in 1970. Eight, the key was a shoe that we uh, we developed specifically two reasons: one for the Edmonton Commonwealth Games, and the other to uh, to give to Runners World to get into their ratings. And we did get a five star, which is the top rating that they give. Now, this is the uh, iconic uh, Aztec shoe. Absolutely, the iconic yeah. Aztec. Yes. <clears throat> so we got the five star. That was the key. All we needed was the door. And the door was Paul Feynman. Once we, once we met up with Paul Feynman, he, as an American, knew his market. And so that's how we started in America. Yeah, and you speak uh, fondly of, of Paul in the book. And uh, you also mentioned this a few times. You mentioned these gatekeepers and keys and doorways. Is that how it was in your head all the time that you just need, you were almost there on the other side of the door. You just needed something to get you through. Well, we did, because the American market is vast. They, they, they didn't know uh, Reebok, they'd never heard of it, let alone know Joe Foster, um, and, or even J.W. Foster. Oh, however, I did meet a few people who said, yeah, I remember J.W. Foster's. We used to have them at college. Because wow. and, and Jack and Frank Ryan, of course, that was their market. They were at Yale, and they supplied colleges and universities. So one or two people did remember Joe. But it's a big, it's a big market. Unless, unless you've got a hook, unless you've got a key, <clears throat> nobody knows you why should they buy your product yeah um, and, sorry yes, just out of interest and you know, it's just from a marketing point of view talking of the the heritage of jw foster the the uh pro quality of the product 
did the American market care about the heritage? Did they care really who made these shoes and where they came from? Or was it purely about how good the product was? I don't think they, they were too bothered about heritage. My uh, meetings with many Americans, they don't really uh, look for history. They, they more or less look about what we're doing now and uh, what's new, uh, you know, where things are going forward, which I'm, I'm sure heritage does have some influence somewhere, but I don't think the Americans are the same as the Europeans. Europeans put a lot of uh, uh, a lot of weight behind the heritage of a, of a brand. Yeah, as and far as Americans are concerned, they were just yeah, happy to go forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And um, you you only have to think of the great European luxury houses um, to to see where you know their their brand power and marketing presence come from, and, and that's all about heritage. And then you think of the trailblazing American brands that you know. Uh, adorn our screens every day and you know there's not so much about the history it's about what they're providing in the here and now um when you guys started to have um a bit of traction in the states did you did you get a feeling because you do mention your your competitors obviously people will know from the sports footwear world the general competitors at the time were nike and um adidas and and somewhat puma to a certain extent but in the states certainly Nike and Adidas. Did you, were you kind of ready for a marketing lineup against those guys or did you kind of want to stick to your niche originally? Um, I mean, people will read in the book how you got further than just the athletics niche eventually, but what, when, to begin with, were you just kind of ready to do your own thing or were you prepared to, to long-term go head to head with those guys? Well, I think long-term you, you have to be. Um, Nike grew with the, with the running boom. And the running boom was driven by the magazine Runner's World that I mentioned that we got a five-star rating in. And since, since the market was driven by Runner's World, not by Nike, um, the thing was that we could compete. If we had a shoe that Runner's World accepted, we were, we were almost on a level playing field then with, with Nike. Funnily enough, uh, Adidas were very slow at that time to get into the running market. They were very much into soccer and they were very much into athletics. But uh, running was something that they came to a little later. The people that we were competing against, apart from Nike, would be New Balance, Brooks, Etonic, those sort of people, which were American companies. Mm. And uh, you know, Ciccone. And since uh, Tiger, uh, they, they, they were there because, uh, of course, Blue Ribbon Sports became Nike and Blue Ribbon Sports imported Tiger to begin with. Uh, that was Phil Knight's start. So really, I just a bit slow. But it was Runner's World that uh, allowed us, gave, gave us that opportunity to compete. And that's where we, uh, <clears throat> well, I was, I was determined to design a shoe that would, uh, that would get a five star. And of course, that's where Aztec came in. It has to be the, the one, the key that, uh, that got us in, into the market. It's so interesting, the whole um, the thing. I mean, I, I, was, I wrote in our notes before, really, you, you spoke about influencers in the book early on, like, you know, even when your, your father was making things, you know, there were influencers back then. This is not a new phenomenon. It's just the, the phenomenon of influencers now is purely the, the way they can carry a message um, yes. so quickly, of course. Um, 
do you think that when it, so what's interesting to me is the dichotomy there because you've got influencing on one side you know hopefully everyone sees me with this shoe and then you've got this actually if we make the perfect product and it's endorsed by the biggest sort of brand if you like in the business in that and at that time runners world that's really the key to success and was it was it paul fireman that basically said to you if you make the best quality shoe we've got a better chance rather than just sort of brand marketing this thing to death well yes i mean what, what he needed he he needed the key we uh, i mean ad came up very interested in 1979 um and paul fireman very interested and i went back to america in may to see both came out and paul fireman came up would uh, would give me an order for twenty five thousand pounds which is about six months production from our small factory in the uk mm. i was prepared for that though i knew that we we would need more better production bulk production and i had friends at barter and barter were quite happy to uh, produce for me we did get a problem with that <laughs> the other thing was that came out said yes well twenty five thousand pounds but uh, we need them at a better price again i knew that that was there and it was coming because the better price from the far east a better price was either Taiwan or South Korea. So I had been talking with people from South Korea. And in fact, uh, later, later on in the year, I made, I made that uh, round the world trip, uh, just essentially to see the, uh, the factories in Korea and, and talk to them. Um, but then I went, after seeing Kmart, I went over to Boston to meet with Paul Feynman. And that's where the, uh, the synergy was. Uh, came out were too big, really. I, I, I know they would have taken our twenty-five thousand pairs, tested them in the in their stores, and if they didn't uh, produce enough uh, money per square meter, then it would have been over. But uh, Paul Feynman, <clears throat> and it was only only later after he'd started with us that uh, I realised he was really tired of the business that he was running, which was Boston Camping. <laughs> because my second visit to him after he'd agreed and we'd signed a piece of paper, there was no Boston camping. Yes. He, <laughs> he just, yeah. they just stopped. It's, I think his brother went to make uh, some wallets, snap wallets, there were some wallets, and his, uh, his brother-in-law, who were all in the business, he went, he went to open a <laughs> second-hand car lot. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, it, it, it was clear that, that Reebok, or whether it's Reebok the brand, or whether it was your drive, or the burgeoning market uh, flicked a switch in him that that led you all to take things to another level um shortly after that you start producing um uh, the shoes in uh south korea as it is um yes. how did you find the the general experience of of working with um you know a company from a completely different culture i mean you always sound very organized in your in your doings, but were, were there levels of organization or expected organization better, worse? How, how was that to begin with? Uh, well, of course, as we know, they can produce at a better price, which means that uh, labor is no problem. They had as, as much labor as they wanted to make these shoes. Um, and I, I had a good example, which is quite amusing whilst I was there. The, uh, in, in a running shoe and a lot of shoes, there are eyelet holes, holes in which you put your laces. And uh, where we had a nice machine chopping these out, what they had was a, what looked like a tree stump. And they had one man holding the upper on the tree stump 
another one holding a, uh, a punch which had about five punches in it. <laughs> and then a third man hitting that with a hammer. And <laughs> it was, I, did, I mean, I can, I, I can still, still see that today and wincing at the thought. The health and safety police would not be happy with that now, would they? <laughs> they would not. And that, that also included the adhesives. I mean, these adhesives are quite toxic. And uh, in our small factory, we had to have a, a lot of uh, 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 changes and exchanges. We had fans, the whole thing. But over there in South Korea, it didn't matter. They, they just used it uh, sort of on a bench without any uh, conditioning at all. So, wow. they, you know, but the, what was very interesting was that the product was great. They, they made one, there was no question in the, the quality of the product. And, and they were making it at less than half the price. The biggest problem was, uh, say, funding this whole operation. Yeah. Because it was taken off nicely. We, Paul Fireman had 20,000 pairs uh, after after the first uh, NSGA meeting that we went to NSGA show, uh, and that those we had made by Barter, some failed, and uh, but Barter had given Paul a credit line, which is fine. If you go to the Far East, going to South Korea, you have to put up a letter of credit, which means your bank is supporting, and your bank will pay if you can't pay. And banks don't do that unless they know you've got the money somewhere. Yeah. And, and once you've bought the product, it's, it's shipped. It has to come to your warehouse. It has to be shipped out to your retailers. And your retailers take anything between 30 to 90 days to pay. That is a big, long uh, road that you've got to cover financially. Yeah, big headache. And, and this, is, this is where we, well, Paul, had, Paul was okay. He, he had money. We all have a bit of money. But this was more than what... It needed financing, proper finances, not something that you could sort of go to your bank and say, look, I need a bit of money. Uh, and this is what brought Stephen Rubin in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stephen Rubin, uh, Pentland Industries, which you may know, uh, he, he had a, a number of companies. I think they, this day they own JD Sports yeah. and a few more. And uh, what Stephen had, he also had a company in... It's in Hong Kong, actually, and that's where he ran the, ran the company from, ASCO. And ASCO was an so associated shoe company. And what they did, they did sourcing. And they sourced shoes for British Shoe Corporation, for other uh, big, large operations that normally made shoes in the UK. He would source them out of the Far East. And so for Paul, he, he didn't put a great deal of money down to, to become part of Paul's business. But what he did do, he gave a credit line, and that's all that Paul needed. Because with the credit line, he he soon owed uh, Stephen twenty million dollars. So that's how the company was growing, and that's the side of money it needed. Yeah, for those listening who have not heard of Pentland, um, Pentland today, um, I don't know about back then how many of these own, but they own brands like uh, Aless, Canterbury. Uh, Kickers, Lacoste, Speedo, I mean, some pretty big brands in the kind of sporting world. And um, they obviously had in Mr. Rubin someone who had a bit of financial firepower. Um, that really obviously was, was another of the big keys that allowed you to kick on. But one thing, and I think 
<laughs> the most interesting, uh, one of the most interesting bits of the book to me is this, and because I love this, because this is, you know, what everyone aspires to do is uncover a, an untapped niche. Um, so just, just for the listeners, um, talk to us about aerobics, because there are many younger people listening won't really know of aerobics, but if, uh, like everyone, you've been locked down in your house for the last six months, you may well have done communal exercise, whether it's via Zoom or YouTube. Um, but aerobics in the early 80s in the States was just about to really take off. And what role did that play in Reebok's growth, Joe? Well, Reebok were doing very well with the running uh, shoes and that business was growing very nicely. Um, and we had uh, representatives all over the country and we had a tech rep. A tech rep is one who goes in and talks the good things about the product, not just take orders. And that tech rep was called Arhil Martinez. And he was down in Los Angeles, which is a good place to be. And his wife, Frankie, Frankie, um, she just started going to these aerobic classes uh, with her girlfriends. And they were enjoying it. They were delighted. Arthur was very interested in what was going on here. So he, he joined her at one of the, the classes. And it was, of course, exercise to music, which you know, the girls loved. And uh, he, he saw the instructor that was probably wearing a pair of uh, running shoes. Half the class were wearing running shoes or similar, plimsolls. And the other half were wearing nothing. And it, and it struck him that... Mm, why don't we uh, provide a shoe for this, uh, for this new category, for this aerobics uh, thing? But it was only going on in Los Angeles at the time. And he, yeah. <laughs> he came back and he, he, he had a word with uh, Paul Fireman. He met with him, oh, Paul, this new thing going on down in uh, Los Angeles and it's dancing to music. We, we need to produce a shoe for it. And, of course, Paul said, go, go back, forget it, you know. Look, we're doing well. We've got a run issue. Who knows what do you call it? Oh, aerobics. Never heard of it. Um, but but Arnold didn't accept that. He thought, no, at least we must give it a try. So we went round the back, had a word with the production people. And uh, he said, I want a, a shoe which is glove-like. It just fits like a glove. You use glove leather. So he got them to make him 200 pairs of shoes. And he gave these to the instructors and to some of uh, Frankie's friends, of course, and they loved the shoe. Absolutely delighted. In incredible. And although in those early days, using glove leather was like suicide, really, because yeah. they, they just fell apart. But uh, fortunately, we were talking about America, and we are talking about American women. They loved them. They were so comfortable. If they fell apart, they just went and bought another pair of shoes. Okay, we cured the falling apart bit and still had that nice soft glove like leather. So that, that was great. Uh, but what had happened here, all of a sudden, because Reebok were two years into running, but as against Nike and the Adidas, um, they, they were not seen as being male and sweaty. They were yeah. just there, just arrived, in, as it were, on the scene. And all of a sudden, the women grabbed this. And I don't think it's been done again, and it certainly hasn't been done previously. Women had a shoe specifically for them. And that was really the, the, the key. It was something specific for women, not for men. And, and it just, it went crazy. You know, we, we had a company that had gone from $9 million to $30 million, then it took off. 
and went from $30 million to $90 million to $300 million to $900 million, all in successive years, which, which brought another problem. But I mean, that sort of growth took, took Reebok beyond that is, beyond Nike, and they became number one. So Reebok became number one on a woman's shoe. And the reason why they were allowed to is that Nike and Adidas just looked at it and said, no, it's a, it's a craze, it'll be over with in no time. Women don't do sport, <laughs> they don't do it. And this was a fitness category really, and it's still there today, but it, it didn't die as quickly as Adidas and Nike thought it would do. And that's what drove Reebok. Of really. course. Um, yeah, and I, what, what it did was, I, I guess, open the, the door to niches in other sports, probably more mainstream sports. Um, tennis was probably your next really consciously big thing. But I, I, you know, even I remember as a, as a kid with, with aerobics, there, there was the step aerobics craze, which Reebok were very much part of i remember reebok branded steps and all sorts of stuff like that um but it certainly opened the door um to i guess an even bigger market interesting just just dialing back a little bit you said that you know aerobics was primarily in um in california Uh, people again listening you know probably don't understand in, in in um marketing terms how big a market california alone is let alone the rest of the states but where did um, did did being in a place like Los Angeles uh, that you know another you know very much like New York in terms of you want to get something done people will get it done how important was it to be in those sort of two big centers in the states and did that really kick into you know tennis and the other things as well well of course the, the being being in Los Angeles and uh, you, you had then Jane Fonda and others um, who started to wear the shoe and teach aerobics uh, and once people like Jane Fonda, then other uh, movie stars and people also uh, started wearing the shoe. And the, the demand was such that this was for us the first shoe which, okay, the influence was not just simply performance. The influence went street. And once you're influencing street, it means you're influencing fashion. And so becoming fashion, this grew tremendously popular. And all, all the women were, were in you know, what used to be called sneakers, get your Reeboks. It, it, it became sort of a, a word for, for women's footwear so it, and sneakers. And being in, in Hollywood, it, it got picked up. And soon we had uh, uh, movie stars wearing it, uh, Sigourney Weaver, yeah. uh, Sybil Shepherd picked up an Emmy Award in a, uh, orange high tops. And, and of course, once it became such a sensation there in, uh, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, and also, as you mentioned, tennis, started doing tennis and using the same soft leather that had been developed for the aerobics uh, shoes. So everybody is wearing these and they're wearing them uh, on the streets. We also, and this is, we had a man called Wendell Niles. Wendell Niles Sr. had been, uh, down in Hollywood, he he was a man. He he could he knew everybody, and Wendell Niles Jr. who we, he he'd inherited this from his father, and he uh, <clears throat> he got us uh, together with uh, the 
pro-celebrity tennis tournament, which was held in Monte Carlo. Nice. And this meant that we, we had loads of stars coming over, uh, participating or, or just being part of the the whole scene, as it were. We, we had Sean Connery, we had uh, Roger Moore. Um, we, we had uh, so many of, of these people. Um, and they, they just sort of gave us a different view. Rebox suddenly became spectacular. You know, and, and when you've got so many stars wearing it, it was like you're living in a different, uh, a different world. And Wendell, I, I mean, I can remember Wendell sort of taking me to, to meet uh, Prince Rainier. We went into the palace and we're chatting with Prince Rainier and having, having his champagne. Uh, and it's it's just that the it, this is a different world. All of a sudden, Reebok has become part of the stars. Yeah, fact, I think we we actually bronze out something the rising star. I think that we used that when we when we opened up in Germany, uh, and that was that was Reebok. So I mean, once uh, was, I know there was Jane Seymour that we uh, we had in the shoes. Um, there were so many, and and it. Uh, Became, I mean, who was dancing in the street? It was uh, the uh, well, musicians and everybody started just wearing the shoes. Yeah, and um, at this point in the book, um, there's a whole period, and you know, we'll let people buy the book hopefully and read it for themselves. But the the kind of the golden age, if you like, um, where so much happens and we we go from from shooing uh movie stars and iconic sports uh men and women um and then you know the the, the one that i remember personally because as a 11 or 12 year old kid the reebok pump was the be all and end all if i could get hold of a pair of those i would have died a happy boy um and i remember the uh the dunk contest in 91 i think it was where uh, a chap called D Brown did a thing called the blind dunk where as he jumped, he covered his face uh, or his eyes with the inside of his elbow and made the dunk and customary for the cameras stopped and pumped his Reebok pump shoes to an audience of probably hundreds of millions of people in an iconic moment. And um, I thought it was, quite poignant in the book that you intertwined the the little story about that with sponsoring uh, Bolton Wanderers. Um, and, you know, from you're talking about two polar opposites here, the, the glitz and glamour of the NBA back to the, the working man sport of Bolton. One of the right. things I sent over ahead of the podcast was the role that these giant sports played. But you mentioned early on in the book about football being a massive part of the community in Bolton. And one of our young aspiring journalists here on the sporting blog wrote a very poignant piece and interviewed lots of people involved in Berry football club, sadly no longer with us since it went out of business 18 months ago. You put money into to Bolton. You, you admit in the book that you're not, you know, a natural football fan. You you don't have that sort of tribal element to your personality, but how important was it for you with, with all of the glitz and the glamour and you know, the, the money and the success to, to still retain some roots back to Bolton? 
Yeah, well, like you say, uh, the reason I'm not a big uh, big football fan is I like participating. And uh, uh, what, with, with football, of course, uh, that is the biggest spectator sport globally. And it's the spectators that, uh, that are influenced and it's the spectators who are street and they're the ones that buy, that give you the bulk of your product. Uh, but for my sins, yes, being born in Bolton, uh, growing up in Bolton, uh, and really we, uh, we built our international office in Bolton. And yes, I, I am from Bolton. And everywhere, wherever I'm traveling, around the world, you would look at the results on a Saturday and check how Bolton are doing. And right, they're not doing too good at the moment, but uh, that's, a, that's another story. But they did well, they've, they've done very well. And yes, uh, you know, I, I support, if you call it supporting, sort of Liverpool and uh, Manchester United. You know, and if, if, if a British team is, uh, is playing against uh, an overseas team, which reminds me of uh, my, my wife, we, we were in, um, in Italy. And Liverpool, I don't forget who they were playing, but Liverpool were playing and we were in a restaurant eating and this, this match was on. This was the European Cup final. The match was on and we were sat there and this team, uh, it was an Italian team, they scored, I think they scored three times and everybody's cheering. Then Liverpool put one into the net, made it 3-1. And we just sort of, uh, without thinking, just cheered. Everybody looked at us and we think, <laughs> Oops, we're in the wrong place. However, by the time we got back to our hotel, Liverpool had made it three apiece, and uh, all the people who were watching us in the hotel were so disgusted that they they got up and left the room on the penalties, <laughs> and Liverpool won. So, and yes, we're supported. I, I support uh, teams. Yeah, I do support. But it, as I say, I'm I'm more preferring to play a sport as I played badminton at a reasonable uh, level, and. Uh, when I couldn't really play badminton that well, I played a bit of tennis. Now the knees and the hips don't allow you in that. But uh, having Bolton Wonders, um, they, when they built the new stadium there, we named it with uh, being, being Reebok. And although Reebok have not been there for 10 years, everybody in Bolton, when they go into the shopping centres, uh, they say, oh, I'll see you at the Reebok. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I did as well. And someone told me the other day that for some time now or at least recently it's the university of bolton stadium or something and uh for me for me it will always be the reebok and uh i will i have fond memories of, of bolton um as a team in the in the premier league and some iconic players jj akotcha uh, amongst yes, some of the very finest look we're going to wrap up fairly soon but just talking of participation and i just like to get your take on this as a as a fan really both those, uh, both badminton and athletics, uh, played a big part in Reebok's rise, just because of the inspiration you got from from uh, running and then playing badminton and so on and so forth, mm. uh, or at least the rise of your life. Those are both sports that, you know, compared to others, are commercially not as successful and in terms of media presence don't get much. Now, badminton's a fantastic sport; um, it's the fastest of all games. Um, and you know it's spectacular to watch at the highest level and athletics at its root cause you're still watching human beings perform feats that no other human being can do you're, you're watching someone try and be the fastest throw something the furthest jump the highest those are all impressive things what would you do if you were in the hot seat of either of those two sports to maybe try and 
get them back to where maybe they should be in, in terms of media attention? Well, I don't know how, how possible this may be, but I can probably put the link to cricket. Cricket is quite a boring game if you're sat on the, uh, uh, in, in the stands watching it. Uh, you see somebody run up and if you're lucky, you see the ball. If you're unlucky, you, you see a fielder running after a batsman hit it. Now, that has really, really come on now on television. And this is what you need. You need exposure on television. Because on television, they can show that ball at any speed you want. They can show exactly how it moves. Mm. Now, you, you're really seeing something that only possibly the players ever saw. Yeah. Even if they did. So you're seeing it really close up. So technology, whatever it is, they've got to have the technology that brings, brings the... Uh, well, the viewer, and it's going to be possibly, I think, on some of these uh, uh, places where now where crickets, they, they maybe have really big screens, but I, I think that you really get the best watching it on a, on a big television screen uh, more than just being a spectator. So, yeah. you know, a, a lot of spectators do go, but I think they go for a day out. But if you really want to, you're really keen on sport, and really keen on the sport, it is when you can see things happening close up. And so that for me is uh, both in athletics and in badminton. I think badminton, they could probably get as close as they do with, uh, uh, with, with golf. So with, uh, with cricket, they could probably do that. Um, but like you say, it's a very fast sport. That's why my knees have gone now. I've got one new knee. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> sport, so it does take it out of you. Um, but it's also played indoors, it's uh, badminton, and it, not many real stadiums that you can go to. I mean, the biggest probably would be uh, the O2, where they do the tennis. And that's, yeah. the, that's incredible sports, tennis. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but of course, tennis is basically an outdoor sport where you can get a lot of spectators. Uh, and you do get a lot of following. Whereas with badminton, it's pure and simply indoors. At least it is in countries like uh, the UK. Maybe you can play it outdoors when you're, you're in India or that, that's where they seem to play most of it. So certainly in the Far East. I agree with you. I mean, actually, you mentioned the O2. That's interesting because the, the, the thing they did at the O2 when they brought tennis there was, was to change the environment. So it's pitch black. The court is illuminated only. You know, you can't really even see the audience. The lighting is as such that the ball is like this sort of fluorescent orb flying around and all of the attention is on the court and they invested a lot of money in the in the camera work so exactly as you say the sporting experience at the stadium is is interesting but at home you're getting an even better experience uh, if you're into watching the game and um of course american sports have known that for years and years which is why watching nfl and nba and Major League Baseball on TV is such a pleasure because they do it so well. Um, look, Joe, thanks very much for joining us. I, I do hope that um, if anyone's listening, you do pick up the book. Um, and just to repeat, it's called Shoemaker. Um, it's really interesting. And if you've got any head for business or you have an ambition in life to run a business, start something new, whatever it is, um, this might just give you the inspiration you need because it shows you things certainly didn't happen overnight for Joe and for Reba. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
but um, with a lot of uh, perseverance and I think the vision and ambition, it shows that you can do anything you like. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the Sporting Blog. I wish you the very best of luck with the book and I hope to speak to you again soon. Well, thank you, Wally. The book is going very well at the moment. We have a lot of sales coming on and uh, it's keeping me busy because the only way that uh, anybody can get a signed book with uh, COVID being around is to buy it through uh, our company here. We we set up a company called J.D. Foster Heritage and that, that's the website. And if you do want a signed copy, we're not forcing you. <laughs> you can get copies from Amazon, you can get copies from Waterstones, all the usual places. Um, but for a signed copy, and there's a lot of people wanting signed copies, so that's, that's why we had to do it. And uh, it's been keeping me busy, I can tell you. Okay, well, we will add a link to um, your JW Foster Heritage website in the show notes, and we'll put a, a link somewhere on the blog and through our social media. So if anyone wants to take advantage of the signed copy, they can do so. Um, thanks, Joe. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll be back probably next week, and uh, I hope everyone has a good afternoon. Thanks a lot. <laughs>